What worries you most about any military action we might take? It's how do we keep this from escalating out of control, uh, if, if you uh, get my drift on that. Oh, I get your drift, General. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast and on Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, KPSQ in Fayetteville, Arkansas, KODX in Seattle, Washington, KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding, California, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week, thanks to you. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. All-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Having a bit of a deja vu moment today, Desi Doyen. Deja vu. For some reason. Hmm, yes. wonder why that might be. Before we get to that, however, um, I don't know if you saw this, but according to the New York Times, President Donald Trump, in a sharp reversal, told a gathering of farm state lawmakers and governors on Thursday that he was directing his advisors to look into rejoining the multi-country uh, multi trade deal known as the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Well, what do you know? Of course, he pulled out of the TPP just days after assuming the presidency. Uh, he spent, uh, what, a couple of years uh, during his uh, campaign bashing the TPP, oh, bashing yeah. the trade deals. Totally. Uh, he was very proudly pulled out of the uh the uh, the deal with that would have been with uh, some 11 other trans-Pacific countries. But now he's thinking, well, you know what? Maybe we'll go back in. That deal sounded OK after all. He's so consistently inconsistent. Which is the problem? And it might be somewhat amusing, I suppose, when it comes to things like trade deals. But in a story at Washington Post last night, uh, based on what they describe as interviews with 21 administration officials, outside advisors, lawmakers, confidants, many of them speaking on the condition of anonymity to discuss sensitive details and conversations. The paper reports that Trump's daily Twitter disruptions are emblematic of a president operating on a tornado of impulses and with no clear strategy. You think? As he faces some of the most consequential decisions of his presidency, including Syria, trade policy, 
and the Russian interference probe that threatens to overwhelm his administration. Uh, one West Wing aide speaking on the condition of anonymity to share a candid opinion told the, told the paper, it's just like everybody wakes up every morning and does whatever is right in front of them. Oh, my God, Trump Tower is on fire. <laughs> oh, my God, they raided Michael Cohn's office. Oh, my God, we're going to bomb Syria. Whatever is there, the aide said, is what people respond to, and there is no proactive strategic thinking at all. I must say I feel somewhat for those staffers in truth because, yes, that's how I feel every single day these days. I expect uh, all of you do as well. Uh, and frankly, as we try to make sense of what's going on in hopes of letting you know the things that you need to know, that is not easy. And I can only hope that we get it somewhere close to right each day, that we work very hard to do that. Uh, today, however, I, I may need some help because this is really not easy what's going on. Uh, the Post's article comes in the wake of Donald Trump taking to Twitter on Wednesday morning to warn Russia that uh, the, 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 that's the Syrian government's most powerful backer to, quote, get ready because American missiles, quote, will be coming. Nice and new and smart, said the president of the United States on Twitter. That tweet in turn was followed by several more later from the president, less than an hour later, complaining about our relationship with Russia now being worse, according to him, than during the Cold War. He says there is no reason for this. Russia needs us to help with their economy, something that would be very easy to do. And we need all nations to work together, adding stop the arms race. Mind you, this was less than an hour after he talked uh, after he warned Russia to get ready because the bombs were coming. U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chair Bob Corker of Tennessee uh, told The Washington Post as all of this was playing out on Wednesday afternoon that he had yet to hear from Donald Trump or other administrations at all about any details of any impending action in Syria. Corker said, I have no idea. Now, mind you, remember, he's the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee who the normally would be informed if there were impending uh, military action by the U.S. He says, I have no idea. So far, it appears to me to be bluster. Corker said, then I saw a tweet come out about us working with Russia right after we're getting ready to bomb them. So, I mean, who knows, said Corker. In fact, nobody knows, including the White House itself and especially the president of the United States himself, who is making up U.S. policy literally on a minute to minute basis, uh, just on a completely ad hoc basis. Now, that would be disturbing at any time, but it's even more disturbing when we're talking about Syria and going to war. Syria, which is already exceedingly complicated, and now as an attack by the U.S. on Syria could result in a response and, yes, a shooting war with Russia in which both Iran and Israel, among others, could quickly uh, get dragged into the mix. So it's one thing, I guess, when he's blustering about trade deals and the TPP, it's quite another thing when he's talking about going to war. 
the the Washington Post goes on to note the more general question of U.S. engagement in Syria has confounded and divided the administration. Officials at the White House and Pentagon, for instance, were blindsided by Trump's pronouncement at a rally in Ohio in late, in late March, just uh, actually last week, that U.S. troops would be leaving Syria, quote, very soon. We were going to leave just days ago. And in the first hours after the speech, those officials at the White House and the Pentagon scrambled to get a sense of what the hell the president of the United States was talking about when he said we're going to be leaving very soon. Trump initially told aides that he wanted U.S. soldiers and Marines to leave in 48 hours. Oh, my goodness. Right. Washington Post notes that's an impossible timeline that alarmed the Pentagon, sent officials racing to try to dissuade him, according to two U.S. officials. Eventually, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis and others persuaded Trump to give the military another six months to wipe out the remnants of the Islamic State. The timeline was far from ideal, they report, but was viewed at least as a major victory compared with Trump's original timeline of 48 hours. Senior U.S. officials described a president who is operating largely on impulse with little patience for the advice of his top aides. A decision or statement is made by the president and then the principals, Mattis or uh, Mike Pompeo, who's the CIA head, was, uh, had hearings in the, his confirmation hearings today because he's set to become the secretary of state. Uh, or General Kelly, his Secretary of State. I'm sorry, his uh, his Chief of Staff. So the, the president says something, and then those folks come running. They come in and tell him, we can't do that, according to one senior administration official. When that fails, the official said, we reverse engineer a policy process in order to match whatever the president said. On some level, the paper reports frustrated and confused White House aides have simply reconciled themselves at this point to the reality that they have little to no control over Trump's actions and instead they remain prepared to either explain them away or clean them up. A Republican strategist in frequent touch with the White House, according to the paper, says Trump is truly serving as his own chief of staff, communications director and policy maven. He is making it up as he goes along, including when it comes to issues of war. And remember, uh, supposedly in a month or two, he's supposed to meet with Kim Jong-un concerning, oh, nuclear war with North Korea. I say supposedly because I remain incredibly um, dubious about whether that will happen at all at yeah. this point. What's really disturbing about this is that, you know, essentially we're seeing the presidential id running a roughshod over everything, over foreign policy, over, you know, global geopolitics. Um, and I re remember that Heather Digby Parton said the other day, she said that she believes that John Bolton, his new national security advisor, is feeding into Trump's impulsiveness. He actually helps exacerbate that. And um, as unfortunately, if it needed, as if it needs oh, to be yeah, exacerbated. Oh yeah, it needs right? any kind of yeah. more oxygen to feed that, to fuel that fire. And and you know, I have to point out, Republicans in Congress who have, I guess, the most power to curb him, to rein him in, they're really not doing anything no. but just talking about it. Lights on, nobody's home. Trump said on Thursday that he will decide, quote, fairly soon how to respond to an apparent chemical weapons attack in Syria. 
Uh, this is according to The Hill. Trump's comments made it clear that despite promising a missile strike against Syria just 24 hours ago, no decision has actually been made on a U.S. response. Trump said uh, today to reporters, we'll see what happens, folks. Too bad the world put us in a position like this. Yes. <laughs> Too bad. On Thursday morning, Trump rejected the criticism from many, including us on yesterday's broadcast, pointing out that he had been mercilessly critical of Barack Obama for publicly projecting military actions in advance of taking them, uh, as many saw his tweets to Russia warning that they should get ready for incoming missiles. Uh, on Thursday, he tweeted, uh, quote, Never said when an attack on Syria would take place. Could be very soon or not soon at all, he added. In what some now see as him backing off his previous hawkish position just hours earlier, which was itself a reversal itself from his position just days earlier at that speech in Ohio that he wanted to pull out of Syria entirely, Washington Post uh, notes that on Monday, Trump had said a decision on Syria would come in 24 to 48 hours. That was on Monday. Days later, now, that time frame has elapsed and has been complicated, thankfully, by plans for an international inspection of the attack area. Well, there's an idea. Let's maybe understand what actually happened and maybe who was behind it before launching what could turn into World War III. That seems reasonable. Later on Thursday... During a brief appearance before reporters, Donald Trump said that he was continuing to meet with advisors about the possibility of U.S. missile strikes, which have appeared likely since the deaths of more than 40 civilians in the rebel-held town of Duma near Damascus last weekend. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis also thankfully, raised some caution flags on Thursday, musing aloud about the risks of an escalating war, even as he told Congress that the Pentagon would present options for a Syria response at a National Security Council meeting uh, later in the day on Thursday. But let's go back. Let's go way back to way, way back to February of this year. I know that seems forever ago, given uh, Donald Trump time, but uh, February of this year to a story uh, pointed out to us by our friend Gaius Publius over at uh, Down With Tyranny. Uh, this from uh, Associated Press's Roger Burns uh, reported at the time, February 2nd of this year. The U.S has no evidence to confirm reports from aid groups and others that the Syrian government has used deadly chemical sarin on its citizens, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis said on Friday. So this was in early February. Mattis told reporters at the Pentagon, quote, we have other reports from the battlefield from people who claim it's been used. We do not have evidence of it. He said, we're looking for evidence of it since clearly we are dealing with the Assad regime. 
that has used denial and deceit to hide their outlaw actions, according to James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, in February. Newsweek's Ian Wilkie responded at the time, at the same moment when everyone was hyperventilating about, uh, remember this was the time that that Republican House Intelligence Committee memo on FISA, you know, the FISA warrant to spy on a Trump campaign official was coming out. Yeah, I'm sorry. It feels like that was five years ago. I, but know. I got you. It was it only was a month February, or so. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so at the very same time that everybody was worried with that, you got Jim Mattis out there saying, yeah, we don't have any evidence of uh, poison gas uh, used by Assad in Syria. So very few people noticed that uh, this was going on. The, the the FISA warrant nonsense was going on. They were trying to discredit the Steele dossier and, and Robert the Robert Mueller probe and all of that. So Newsweek's Ian Wilkie responded to Mattis at the time by saying, lost in the hyper-politicized hullabaloo surrounding the Nunes Memorandum and the Steele dossier was the striking statement by Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis that the U.S. has, quote, no evidence that the Syrian government used the banned nerve agent sarin against its own people. Wilkie writes, in Newsweek, this assertion flies in the face of the White House National Security Council memorandum, which was rapidly produced and declassified in order to justify an American Tomahawk missile strike against the Sheirat Air Base in Syria back in April of 2017. Mattis offered no qualifications to a statement, which means, says Wilkie, that both the 2017 event in Khan in response to that, uh, that was in uh, 2017, where we shot uh, Tomahawk missiles at that airbase in response. So both the 2017 event in Khan Shikun and the 2013 tragedy in Ghouta, says Wilkie, are unsolved cases in the eyes of the Defense Department and the Defense Intelligence Agency. And yet, in the 2017 case, Trump hurled Tomahawk missiles at a sovereign nation with no authorization at all from Congress, yet with much approval from Republicans and Democrats alike at the time. And remember the alleged chemical attack back in 2013, which Obama wanted to bomb in response to as well, that also remains apparently without evidence, according to the Defense Department. In that case, Obama had asked Congress for authorization and they decided to take no action. But, you know, if you go out and you ask 100 random strangers on the street, uh, did uh, Assad carry out chemical weapons attacks against his own people? I suspect that anywhere from 99 to 100 of them would say, well, of course he did. And by the way, maybe he did. But if so, the U.S. appears to have no evidence that he actually did that, despite bombing them in response to it last year and now preparing to do so again at any moment, seemingly. As to that potential attack, uh, which Russia has said they uh, they would respond to uh, by targeting the, the missile launchers that launched any such attack, for example, a U.S. Navy ship, Mattis was in Congress today, and uh, here's part of his exchange with Democratic Congresswoman Nikki Songus of uh, Massachusetts talking about the attack last year and 
that we did respond to and uh, potentially about another attack again uh, now. What do you hope to achieve by any military action that the administration might eventually decide to take? Uh, Congresswoman, I, I don't want to get, as you'll understand, into the details of a, a potential uh, decision by the Commander-in-Chief uh, due to this latest attack, which is absolutely inexcusable. Uh, there have been a number of these attacks. In many cases, you know, we don't have troops. We're not engaged on, in the ground, on the ground there. So I cannot tell you that we had evidence, even though we certainly had a lot of media and social media indicators that either chlorine or sarin were used. Uh, as far as our current situation, if, like last time, we decide we have to take military action in regard to this chemical weapons attack, then like last time, we will be reporting to Congress just as we did when we fired uh, a little over a year ago, slightly over a year ago. On and, the and what worries you most about any military action we might take, given the very highly complex um, landscape in Syria, the many, many actors that are engaged there? Well, there's a, there's a tactical concern, uh, ma'am, that civilian, innocent people, we don't add to any civilian deaths and do everything humanly possible to avoid that. We're trying to stop the murder of innocent people. But on a strategic level, it's how do we keep this from escalating out of control, uh, if, if you uh, get my drift on that. I get your drift. Thank you. I yield back. Yeah. Uh, I get your drift, too, uh, General. I, you know, how do we keep this escalating out of control? I'm glad at least that uh, he's aware of that concern. At least he seems concerned about that part of it. But uh, did you catch there? He said, I cannot tell you that we have evidence. And yet we're preparing to bomb a country for which we have no evidence. He says we're trying to stop the murder of innocent people. Well, good luck with that. I guess uh, he wants to avoid civilian deaths, but we can go ahead and kill people in the military that we have no idea that that are not waging war on us and we have no evidence whether they are actually waging war on their own people at least with chemical weapons no evidence Matt, Matt has further reiterated that the U.S. doesn't have the evidence at all right now of a chemical attack but he hopes to find some Though even if they do, they will likely still not know who actually used it, he conceded, where it came from. Was it from the Syrian government, who says they have no chemical weapons at all anymore? Or was it from the Syrian rebels hoping to bring the U.S. back into this exactly as the U.S. seems prepared to do? I believe there was a chemical attack, and we're looking for the actual evidence. The, uh, the OPCW, this is the Organization for the uh, Chemical uh, Weapons Convention, we're trying to get those inspectors in probably uh, within the week. You know the challenges we face where Russia has six times in the UN uh, rejected and uh, made certain that uh, we could not get uh, in investigators in. We will not know from this investigating team that goes in if we get them in, if the regime will let them in, we will not know who did it. They can only say that they found evidence or did not. And as each day goes by, as you know, it's a non-persistent gas, so it becomes more and more difficult to confirm it. So that, that's where we're at right now, sir. I, this to me is amazing. 
Uh, he says that even if we get in our inspectors, we're trying to get them in. Even if we get them in, however, uh, what we'll find maybe is evidence of a chemical attack, but we won't know who did it. And yet, apparently, we are prepared to bomb people for it anyway, without even knowing if they were responsible for it. Now, please keep in mind, the Syrian government, with the help of Russia, has made huge gains in taking back control of much of the country from the rebels in this uh, long civil war there. This is an area near Damascus where the recent attack occurred. It was one of the last rebel strongholds in the nation. So the use of chemical weapons by Syria there would seem incredibly stupid and or counterproductive to Syria's aims. They almost have control of their country back. And so why would they do that? It doesn't seem to make much sense. And yet there seems to be very little skepticism from the media or from members of Congress of any of, of either party, frankly, at the moment on this. Now, separately, a senior U.S. official said that top Pentagon brass have, have argued that quick military action may have unintended consequences. Oh. That's good, uh, including with Russia. I mean, it's good that they're yes, it's good they're talking it. about yes. this, but the fact that that it has to be said. Officials further contend that uh, Trump could look weak if. Like, a, like that unilateral military strike on Syria a year ago, a new assault failed to, dis, to deter Assad, reports the Washington Post. Pentagon officials have also argued to the White House that any action should be done in concert with allies Britain and France and perhaps others. That would also be good. Washington Post U.S. Uh, reports that U.S. officials have stressed in recent days that planning for airstrikes has been careful and orderly and has involved diplomatic and intelligence agencies as well as the Pentagon. But the same officials also said that Trump's direct threat on Wednesday was totally unexpected. British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson appeared to cast doubt Thursday on uh, the odds of an early strike, saying that Britain is calling for a meeting of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, or OPCW, next week. That's good. Someone trying to put some brakes on this. Our friend uh, Gaius Publius goes on to cite another article from the New Jersey Ledger quoting a former Vietnam Green, uh, Green Beret Army officer who later spent several decades in, in the Middle East warning this time it could get out of hand. Pat Lang, this uh, former Green Beret, uh, said uh, back in 2013 referring to when Obama wanted to fire missiles, but Congress failed to give him that authorization in response to another alleged chemical attack where clearly we still don't have the evidence. Back in 2013, the war in Syria was mainly between the Syrian government and the rebels. Now, he says, Russia is a major supporter of the Syrian government. Lang said the Russians have made it very clear that if we attack Syria again, they're going to fight our attack. There will be a war between the United States and Russia over Syria. The uh, Ledger article links to a statement from the Russian U.N. ambassador Vasily Nebenzia on Monday of this week, saying that Moscow has warned the U.S. of, quote, grave repercussions if it carries out an attack against Syrian, the Syrian, govern, uh, Syrian government forces. 
over reports, just reports, of a deadly chemical weapons attack. If no one backs down here, Gaius warns, U.S. and Russian troops and pilots could start killing each other in Syria. Despite all of this, this afternoon, NBC News reported, uh, and this is sort of the the deja vu I was talking about at the top of the show, in, in a breaking exclusive headline. The U.S. now has blood and urine samples from last Saturday's deadly attack in Syria that have tested positive for chemical weapons, according to two U.S. officials familiar with the intelligence. Now, the story from NBC News does not specifically note, uh, but these are unnamed officials. It doesn't explain any, doesn't give any reason for their anonymity in the story. But boy, did those two anonymous officials plant one hell of a story here, eh? In the uh, report, it planted in NBC News, unskeptically reported by the national media. NBC says the samples suggest the presence of both chlorine gas and an unnamed nerve agents, according to the two officials. Typically, such samples are obtained through hospitals and collected by U.S. and foreign intelligence assets on the ground. Now, you heard Mattis say we don't have anybody on the ground there. So where did these samples come from? Who knows? I don't know. NBC doesn't appear to ask. The the officials said they were, quote, confident in the intelligence, though not 100 percent sure. The Assad regime is known to have stocks of the nerve agent Sarin, NBC reports. Well, and I say known to whom? The U.N., to my knowledge, has previously confirmed that any chemical weapons that they did have were, in fact, taken out of the country by Russia years ago. But NBC says they are known to have stocks of the nerve agent sarin and have previously used a mixture of chlorine and sarin in attacks, say U.S. officials. Officials also, again, unnamed officials, also said that the U.S. has compiled intelligence from the U.S. and other countries, including images that indicate the Syrian government was behind the weekend attack. Well, if that's true, someone ought to tell the U.S. Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, because he just said at the very exact same time, he said the exact opposite during testimony before Congress. At the exact same time, NBC was reporting that U.S. officials are saying this, uh, the, the opposite. Russia and Syria, uh, NBC does note, thankfully, that they have denied any involvement in the alleged chemical attack. The assessment about the nature of this April's chemical attack and its likely origin with the Assad regime will be presented to the president, said an official familiar with the intelligence. I guess that official was not Jim Mattis, the defense secretary. Now, listen, I'm not one of these uh, false flag folks. Uh, who you know thinks every attack from 9/11 to these reported chemical attacks in Syria to the mass shootings in the U.S. that they're all fake? They're all fake. I'm not one of those guys. But when we're talking about going to war, potentially a very big war, I do think we ought to have our ducks in a row and we ought to have evidence of what we are responding to before we actually respond to it. And it seems to me that evidence ought to be crystal clear. 
And that doesn't even get into the issue that we don't have time for today, whether there is a constitutional authorization for these actions or not. But we ought to be damn sure about what's going on before we commit to military action and not from anonymous U.S. officials reported unskeptically by the major national media. We have seen that before, and it does not end well. I mean, this report sounds exactly like what we heard in the run-up to the Iraq war. To both wars in Iraq, to be frank. And all of this with a president who is simply making stuff up as he goes, lying about anything he likes at any time as he goes along. This is when we need media to step up. And so far, this is, once again, I'm afraid to say, where they are failing us right now. Quick break, and we're back with more. This is the Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. And I feel like I've been here before. Yes, I do. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I do feel like I've been here before. Uh, U.S. President Donald Trump went to West Virginia uh, last Thursday for an event that was billed as a roundtable discussion on tax reform. But he did not want to talk about tax reform. Instead, he called his prepared remarks, quote, boring. He threw his notes up in the air. Remember this? Oh, Is yeah. That, I'm not going to. And then he went on. And he ranted about a variety of other topics, according to Dan Dale over at the Toronto Star. As per usual, his improvised monologue was highly dishonest. His comments at the event included 15 false claims. Well, that's a big day. Fifteen false claims uh, on trade, immigration, terrorism, a variety of other subjects, including the size of the crowd at a campaign rally two years ago. Oh, my. Trump added uh, what Dale, uh, he has been tracking the, uh, the lies. He calls them false claims for good reason. But uh, he says Trump added 17 additional false claims over the rest of the week last week. He has now, and this was uh, as of Monday of this week, uh, he has now made 1,432 false claims over the first 444 days of his presidency. That averages 3.2 false claims a day. And he explains why, uh, if Trump is a serial liar, why, why he calls these false claims, not lies. And he says the answer is because we can't be sure that each and every one of these statements was intentional. He might have been confused. He might have been ignorant to the facts. But whether it was a purposeful lie or not, these are 1,432 false claims as of this past Monday, the first 444 days of Donald Trump's presidency. 
and that we know objectively in each of those cases that he was not telling the truth. One of the false claims that we discussed a little bit last week had to do with his repeated false claim about uh, regarding voter fraud in the 2016 presidential election that he lost in the popular vote by some three million votes. That, of course, drives Donald Trump nuts. So he continues to pretend that it didn't happen. And uh, his latest lie on that, as he uh, told folks in West Virginia last week, regarded California. In many places, like California, the same person votes many times. You probably heard about that. They always like to say, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. Not a conspiracy theory, folks. Millions and millions of people. And it's very hard because the state guards their records. They don't want to see it. So actually, yes, it is a conspiracy theory, folks. It would indeed take a huge conspiracy, as the L.A. Times notes, one of historic proportions in order to pull off what Donald Trump pretends is a provable fact. The paper notes that, like other states, California does not hold a single election. Instead, we've got 58 separate county elections that are run by local officials responsible for voter registration and tallying the ballots cast in all of the races. Counties in California's biggest jurisdictions are overseen by both Republicans and Democratic supervisors together. Some local registrars are elected. Others are appointed. In either case, they note the scheme that they would need their help or ignorance for some millions and, and millions of people, as Trump said, to vote fraudulently, that that conspiracy would have to be epic in both size and or stealth in order to be pulled off. They say, and then ask yourself, why, why would this dastardly cabal run up the score out here in California where Trump lost by more than 4.2 million votes? Why would they risk drawing all that attention? Even if there were three million fraudulent votes in California, Donald Trump still would have lost the state by 1.2 million votes. So it does not make any sense as the local paper, the L.A. Times, is forced to uh, to detail here. He, they note that what we do know is that confirmed cases of voter fraud in California are actually extremely rare. There were 149 cases investigated by state officials in 2016, and that is more than in most years over the past decade. 149 cases of those investigators found just six cases out of more than 23 million votes cast, they found just six cases worth sending to local district attorneys. Trump said last week that voter fraud is hard to prove in California, quote, because the state guards their records. They don't want anyone to see it, he said. Well, in fact, the information is not secret. Candidates, political strategists, journalists and other uh, other p folks uh, can purchase the data of who voted. Frank L. sends an email. We had talked about this a little bit last week. Frank L. sends email to us at bradcast at bradblog.com to say every year more toddlers with guns shoot people than voters who vote twice or commit fraud. And he sends many references to that fact. He's right. Look it up. But you wouldn't know that given our, uh, frankly, our national media, which tends to repeat long ago debunked voter fraud lies while ignoring the truth about toddlers killing people. 
But that's just one of the reasons why we spent so much time last week talking about on several shows the importance of local media and therefore the right wing Sinclair Broadcast Group and their attempted takeover of uh, local TV news outlets that will be seen in uh, by some 72 percent of the nation unless this takeover of broadcast of Sinclair uh, Sinclair taking over Tribune Media unless that's blocked by Donald Trump's FCC, which seems unlikely since Donald Trump is a huge fan of Sinclair. They have uh, allowed now Sinclair Broadcast Group has allowed a critical advertisement by a consumer watchdog group to run on some of its stations, but it is running its own defense both before and after this negative ad is uh, being allowed to play on their stations, according to CNN. The 30-second ad produced by Allied Progressive, uh, I'm sorry, Allied Progress, comes condemns. Sinclair for mandating its anchors to read the uh, scripted promotional content that you, I'm sure, have heard by now that went viral a week or so ago, specifically citing that video that went viral, showing local news anchors parroting the same message, attacking so-called one-sided journalism, fake news, etc., Allied Progress's message also calls on viewers to stop Sinclair's proposed merger with Tribune Media, which would expand Sinclair's reach to 72% of American households. Here's what that 30-second ad sounds like. What happens when your local news isn't local? This. Sinclair owns this station and nearly 200 others. It forced dozens of anchors to recite the same political message, word for word. Now Sinclair is trying to control local news stations in 72% of American homes. Tell the FCC to stop the Sinclair merger. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. So that was the ad. They allowed that these four Sinclair stations, well, that Sinclair allowed to play on four of their stations. But, but that 30-second advertisement running on those stations in Washington, D.C., Des Moines, Iowa, Seattle, Washington, Baltimore, is preceded by a 15-second Sinclair ad that states that the company thinks, quote, the ad is misleading, but that they wanted to let viewers decide. Uh, they say this station, which is owned by Sinclair Broadcast Group, is proud to present both sides of issues. For that reason, we have agreed to air the commercial you are about to see, opposing Sinclair's acquisition of additional television stations. We think the ad is misleading, but wanted to let you decide. Thank you. That comes before the ad. Oh, so it can on pre their stations. pre-debunk that exactly. Ad. And then the ad plays. And then right after the ad, according to CNN, another message from C uh, from uh, Sinclair saying the misleading ad you wow. just saw. Right. The misleading ad you just saw focused on a brief promotional message that simply said we're a source for truthful news. It ignored thousands of hours of local news we produce each year to keep you informed. The ad was purchased by a group known for its liberal bias. And we hope you won't buy into the hysteria and hype. Kind of gobsmacking. I bet they don't do that for anybody else who buys ad time on their airwaves. 
so th- yeah, I mean, they're, so they'll say, well, we, see, we let that air. We yeah. had no problem. You can, and by the way, they had to pay money to air it. They paid right. money to Sinclair to air that ad, and then Sinclair goes both before and after the ad to give that misinformation and claim that the uh, that the ad was misleading when in fact that ad was right on the money. It's just amazing. So you wonder, you know, we talked in the past segment, last segment about the, you know, the failure of uh, national mainstream news that has brought us into one war after another after another, only to find out later on, oh, yeah, well, you know, we were wrong about the evidence. Sorry about that. Sorry about those hundreds and thousands of millions of people that we killed. Oops. Uh, so the national media has failed, but at least you have, you know, local media in some cases like the L.A. Times who could debunk Donald Trump's nonsense here in California about voter fraud. And you have these local stations which are trusted by their viewers who have, you know, watched these stations and these anchors for years and years that are now being taken over by this right wing outfit, Sinclair, who doesn't even make clear that they are, uh, you know, taking over in many uh, markets. They own more than one station. They may own the NBC affiliate and the CBS affiliate. There was one uh, market. I think this was in uh, Nevada yesterday um, where they own two stations in the same market. And at the top of the website for both of those stations, they put a notice up at the top claiming that CNN is making false claims about uh, Sinclair, click here. It's at the top of the website on both of the affiliate stations, CBS and NBC, both of them that are owned by Sinclair. This is what is happening to our local media. This is why local media uh, and our public airwaves are supposed to be regulated by the FCC. This is exactly what the FCC exists to prevent. And they are doing the opposite of preventing it. They are changing the rules in order to allow Sinclair's takeover. And this is important uh, for the reasons that I've uh, defined, but also for this reason. Politico reports this week that Donald Trump's attacks on the mainstream media are likely rooted in statistical reality. An extensive review of subscription data and election results show that Donald Trump outperformed the previous Republican nominee, Mitt Romney, in counties with the lowest number of news subscribers, but didn't do nearly as well in areas with heavier circulation. Politico's findings, which put Trump's escalating attacks on the media in a new context were drawn from a comparison of election results and subscription information from the Alliance for Audited Media. This is an industry group that verifies print and digital circulation for advertisers. The findings look at more than a thousand mainstream news publications in more than 2,900 counties out of uh, more than 3,000 nationwide in every state. The results show a clear correlation between low subscription rates to newspapers and other digital media and Trump's success in the 2016 election, both against Hillary Clinton and when comparing to Romney in 2012. 
This gives a new force, they report, to the widely voiced concerns of news industry professionals and academicians about Trump's ability to make bold assertions about things like crime rates, unemployment, and other verifiable facts without having any independent checks. Politico's analysis suggests that Trump did indeed do worse in overall in places where independent media could check his claims where the uh, subscription rates to news outlets was higher. Trump and his campaign officials have made no secret of their preference for partisan national outlets and social media to mainstream outlets of, uh, of all types. When dealing with local media, Trump sometimes opted for local TV and radio stations that were owned by conservative-leaning Sinclair Broadcasting. Trump's son-in-law and advisor, Jared Kushner, said that Sinclair had agreed to have their stations broadcast interviews with Donald Trump during the campaign without any commentary, which includes fact checks. None of that. And now as president, Trump is openly touting Sinclair, even though his own FCC is wrestling with whether to approve its efforts uh, to vastly expand its reach by buying Tribune Media. So political uh, Politico's analysis shows how he succeeded in avoiding mainstream outlets and turning that into a winning strategy. They say voters in so-called news deserts, places with minimal newspaper subscriptions, either print or online, went for him in higher-than-expected numbers, in tight races with Clinton in states like Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, the decline in local media could have made the decisive difference. Among the findings uh, looking at this, uh, Trump did better than Romney in areas with fewer households subscribing to news outlets, but worse in areas with higher subscription rates. Trump struggled against Clinton in places with more subscribers. Counties in the top 10 percent of subscription rates were twice as likely to go for Clinton as those in the lowest 10 percent. So, in other words, yes, a uh, an electorate that has been informed, informed by news media, informed by local news media uh, makes a difference. That's why local media is so important and why it's so important to prevent Sinclair from taking over even more of our public airwaves. I should note that in Politico study, they did not include radio in their numbers, uh, which have been taken over long ago by right wing corporations. Democrats have shamefully done nothing about that either. In fact, they encouraged it. Bill Clinton signed the Telecommunications Act in 1996 that made that made it possible for state for companies like Sinclair to buy up our our uh, our airwaves radio continues to be hugely important to politics. Tens of millions listen to right wing radio going to and from work every day for free. Uh, it, you know, they may read a headline on social media, but then they hear it echoed and expanded upon on their public airwaves as they go to work. So, uh, you know, I've been talking about media reform for years. I will continue to keep doing so because all of this is at the heart of our problems, our failed media, misinforming the electorate. Uh, and, of course, elections themselves. So just a quick note, those who uh, I've thanked those who support our station here, KPFK in Los Angeles and uh, the broadcast itself by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. But also 
Thanks to those who support all of our affiliate station partners. Many of them are non-commercial stations. They will gladly welcome your donations. Uh, and our commercial stations as well, no doubt, welcome your support of their sponsors. Let them know where you heard about them. This is important. This matters uh, for reasons I could go on and on about, but I don't have the time because we got to take a quick break and come back with the Green News Report and Desi Doyen. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Did I, did I go on too long there, Des? Did I run too late? Uh, well, you know, Just a late little. is relative. All right. Well, uh, we better get to it. Our latest Green News report. Even in 1958, one of those air pollutants that this Shell researcher reports on was the pollution of the atmosphere by carbon from fossil sources. Newly unearthed internal documents reveal that Shell Oil knew as early as 1958 that its products caused global warming. Senate Democrats call for EPA Chief Scott Pruitt to resign as internal EPA report undermines Pruitt's claims of unprecedented death threats. Plus, even if none of those backwards movements actually last, we're still losing chunks of time when we, we should be participating with the rest of the world in attacking this issue. Obama EPA administrator warns of the long-term consequences of Pruitt's reign. All of those consequences and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. This is a pretty sudden fall from grace for Pruitt, who's been a conservative favorite for his aggressively pro-industry stance. So aggressive, in fact, that even though he is literally in charge of the EPA, his LinkedIn page still lists him as a leading advocate against the EPA's <laughs> activist agenda. <laughs> and it's still true. This is your... Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, we know that Exxon knew, we know that Mobile Oil knew, and now we know that Shell knew too. Yep, a stunning trove of internal company documents reveal that Shell Oil did know too. Shell's own scientists beginning back in the late 1950s warned company executives of Shell's significant role in causing global warming, and they urged immediate action to avoid catastrophic climate change impacts. Shell's researchers even accurately predicted that the oil industry would eventually face lawsuits and investigations for failing to act on that knowledge. But like ExxonMobil and the rest of the oil industry, Shell instead worked to publicly undermine climate science for decades. In an interview on the broadcast, Carol Muffett, president of the Center for International Environmental Law, said that these new documents provide evidence for the multiple investigations and lawsuits against the oil industry over climate damages. What we can now show, and this is very legally relevant, is that for decades Shell was aware of those risks and it continued to take those risks on the assumption that ultimately it would be consumers and governments that bore the cost 
rather than shell itself. We'll link to Muffet's report on this at greennews.bradblog.com, but some of the material is absolutely jaw-dropping going back to 1962 with the Shell scientists saying very specifically that CO2 from the burning of fossil fuels causes global warming, the very thing that Shell and Exxon and Mobil and all the rest have been trying to confuse the public about for decades. This week in politics, an internal EPA memo undermines claims that embattled Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt faces unprecedented security threats. According to Democratic Senators Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island and Tom Carper of Delaware, the unreleased assessment says that EPA's intelligence staff found no specific credible threats to the administrator, who has been under intense scrutiny over his outside spending on personal security and first-class travel. This week, the EPA fired the career agency official who approved that report, Mario Caraballo. In response, an anonymous career EPA staffer told Politico that Caraballo's firing will not intimidate staff, but will instead, quote, embolden us to leak more to get these criminals out. Go get them. Senate Democrats on Wednesday formally called for Pruitt to resign or be fired over his multiple ethical scandals and questionable spending. They also announced an attempt to block a confirmation vote of Trump's nominee for the number two spot at EPA. If confirmed, Andrew Wheeler, a coal industry lobbyist and a climate science denier, would take over the EPA should Pruitt exit. But as with Pruitt's confirmation vote last year, Democrats may not be able to muster the votes to block Wheeler. This week, two coal state Democratic senators, Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, announced they would support Wheeler's confirmation. Incredible. Finally, in an interview with WGBH in Boston, former Obama EPA administrator Gina McCarthy says that while Pruitt has succeeded in attacking science on behalf of polluting industries and appearing to be effective, the good news is that so far Pruitt has only launched the process of rolling back major environmental and public health standards, and that can take years and could very well be overturned in court. However, she says the bad news is that much damage can be done in the meantime. And when he talks about his success, all he talks about is how much he has saved business, as if as if allowing more pollution wouldn't cause lives to be damaged and health to be damaged. He's doing a terrible job. But he's doing the job he was hired to do. For much more on all of the stories we covered today and the ones we couldn't get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. That's where we are. That is. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's greatly appreciated. Miss any portion of today's show or any other? Download it anytime at bradblog.com. You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Bradblog. Thanks also to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Send more